Welcome to Speak Up, the Speech Pathology Australia podcast. This podcast series highlights conversations with esteemed contributors in the speech pathology space. We explore key issues in the profession in a short and easy to listen to format. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. And hello to our listeners and welcome to today's podcast titled Paediatric Fluency, What to Do When with our presenters, Dr. Kate Bridgman and Dr. Shane Erickson. Could you tell us a bit about some of the take home messages from today? Sure. So I guess what we're really interested in is clinical translation. So looking at what we know from research, we've got some pretty good research in paediatric stuttering in Australia, actually, but looking at how does that work for speeches that are working in private practice, community health, working with clients that might have additional um, difficulties or families that aren't um, really able to kind of put in the, the treatment that the families and the research did. So looking at how we can help Uh, our colleagues uh, in the field but also I think really get people to consider stuttering as a genuine communication disorder that can have really significant impacts. I guess um, some of the limitations of of the research you know everyone wants to be an evidence-based practitioner um, and I guess what, we, what we've sort of been talking about is that, yeah, we, we want to be evidence-based practitioners, but in fact, this is just how we should practice. Um, you know, we're all pretty common, or we all commonly use evidence to guide the sort of decisions that we make. Um, and I, I think overwhelmingly what's coming through as we're talking to the um, attendees today is that, yeah, there's a real sort of groundswell for and a recognition of the importance of using evidence. But I guess what's, what's missing to a certain extent is that sort of... That, conduit that okay great you know when things are going pretty well in in terms of what's carried out from a research perspective you know pretty good outcomes are reported but a lot of people are reading that and they're looking at it and they're saying does this really apply to my clients what about my clients who are presenting with the in in a complex way Um, you know whether that's presenting with um, language impairment or um, articulation difficulties ASD etc etc how come that research isn't there and what do I do Um, And so I guess what we're seeing so far is some really great discussions about the sorts of experiences um, that these speeches are are having and and we're sort of sharing our knowledge from a research perspective and also what we know when we're thinking about translation and and what sort of modifications or adjustments might need to be made uh, so that our evidence-based treatments like the LIGCOM program can still be used um, even when there are more challenging cases. Yeah, that's great. Um, And we understand you have an online version of today's presentation coming up later this year. Could you tell us a bit about that and what people can expect from that as well? Sure. So part of um, our research too is around access to treatment and we know that um, our clients don't always have good access to treatment based on where they live, um, resources or funding. But we also know that part of the difficulty with the practice is speech pathologies um, access. And so the reason that um, SPA is trialling putting a workshop online is that it costs a lot to either travel to a PED. Um, We've got colleagues that don't work in metro uh, cities so to actually fly in we know that people in private practice are having to take the day off so they're not treating their clients and potentially traveling as well Um, and we also know that you know speech is a generalist clinician so they're having to choose where to spend their fluency dollars so uh, sorry PD dollars so there's only so many times people can fly in or travel to um, a metro area and I think the other thing we're trialing Shane is maybe not to do a a one-day full workshop Mm. 
Yeah, and look, I, I think that's, that's a pretty exciting sort of development because I guess what that will allow us to do is to sort of present some of this information, go through the same discussions that we would typically have, the same information we typically have in our face-to-face -face workshops. But what we have, or the advantage of having a break between sessions, is that there is that potential that speeches will go off and perhaps see a number of clients and perhaps you know, even start to implement some of the, the strategies or some of the learnings um, from that first session and then perhaps even come back to us in the second session, do some more learning and perhaps even share some of the, the stories of um, some of the, the differences that they've observed. Typically in our face-to-face -face workshops, you know, it's great to get feedback uh, after the, the workshop, but we don't get to sort of interact with the speeches again and say, oh, okay, you know, how did that go? What did you try? What worked? What didn't work? And, you know, how can we now supplement that? And I think that difference in, in having those two sessions and, and having an online session may open the potential for that. So I think there's a real future. And I think the other thing too, the reason that it is a live online workshop rather than a webinar is that we can all sit and watch something. Um, but if we actually have to do it and we have to engage, then we have the opportunity to learn from each other. And so that is why it's absolutely the same workshop that's being replicated. So it's for people that can book in for those three sessions or two sessions. They'll actively participate, we'll show the same media, we'll run the same activities. And it's about doing, and I guess that's what we draw um, from our education background. And I reckon the diversity of the, mm. uh, of the attendees is going to be really interesting too because, you know, clearly you go from um, city to city and, and, you know, typically we would get people who've come from, you know, reasonably similar sorts of backgrounds. But we now have the potential to be connecting people from, you know, as far away as, as Perth to Darwin to Melbourne, mm. rural and metro um, attendees talking to each other and learning together. And I think that not only, you know, clearly the content is going to be the same, but perhaps some of the stories that the attendees share um, could, you know, really value add to this. It sounds like such a fantastic opportunity and definitely very exciting for everybody. Um, you refer to a lot of research in today's presentation and the levels of evidence available for stuttering intervention. Could you explain some of these research um, updates and the implications or considerations that we should consider for our clinical practice? Absolutely. So I guess when we're talking about evidence-based practice, um, the first thing to note is that um, many people will sort of you know, perhaps fall into the trap of just thinking about evidence-based practice as just being research. Now clearly research is important. Research guides our decisions. Um, you know, we were talking about some examples of, of big purchases that we've made where even for, for something like buying a new washing machine, uh, as was discussed this morning, you know, we do research. You know, we go and seek information, whether that's from review websites or uh, we talk to a, a trusted family member or maybe a less trusted salesman seemed to be the uh, overarching theme, but we do this inherently. So we gather information and we interpret and, and sort of rank that evidence. I guess one side point to that is that it's not just about the published evidence uh, as well. That plays a part, but increasingly what we're seeing for, uh, for stuttering speeches is that we also need to take into consideration the other aspects of evidence-based practice. So yes, research, but also clinical expertise, um, and also taking into consideration the context in which you're working and also the individual client circumstances. So that means that I think it's sort of a more holistic approach than perhaps the way that uh, evidence-based practice was referred to. And certainly a criticism of perhaps historical views of evidence-based practice is that it was a real cookie-cutter approach. 
Um, and that doesn't really fit. And that's what we're seeing, as we said before, with these complex cases as well. So um, there's, there is good evidence, and that's great. We're very fortunate in particular for our preschool population that for fluency, there's some really good evidence to support the use of the Lidcom program. Um, and uh, I guess what we're also establishing is that, yes, there is some evidence for, for the Lidcom program, and to a certain extent, syllable time speech for our primary school population um, or school age population, but there's still a gap there. And I think that's probably a challenge that not only the attendees at our workshops are experiencing, but even researchers and, and really experienced clinicians are also having to face as well. Okay, and finally, what would you say to speech pathologists listening to this podcast who don't currently treat children who stutter or who maybe avoid um, treating stuttering? I think that's a really fair question and I was one of those speech pathologists. So for the first five years of um, my speech pathology career, I was speech and language, community health, um, private practice, ASD, and I guess avoided fluency a a bit. And um, so one thing that I would say is I actually started my PhD really not having experience in the Lidcom program. Um, and I didn't get any better for the five years, which means that it took me the same number of sessions on average year one, year two, year three, year four, year five. So what's great is we know that if we are following the um, treatment guidelines and we are following evidence, you actually can get the same outcomes if you're treating a couple of kids a year versus you're someone that's in a position of treating lots of children. And then the other um, point we have is that it's actually kind of published um, research that speech pathologists have this attitude where they avoid treating stuttering and it's a fine line because we have to treat what we feel comfortable with and what's in the scope of our practice but we also know that there's an absolute critical shortage um, around children's access to speech pathology so I guess my call to people is ethically if you're someone's publicly funded speech pathologist if you're the only speech pathologist in the town is saying no the best thing by them if there are other options if there are speeches that have more skills and better expertise absolutely it makes sense for us all to play to our strengths but what we're seeing is there's children that don't have access to speech pathologists who will treat them but do have access to paediatric speech pathology and that's that real fine line so when people are saying I don't treat stuttering maybe if we could challenge people to unpack that is it really that you're not good at it or we just haven't tried and we all avoid things we can't do I still don't parallel park because I'm not good at it right but if I was the only person that could park that car and it had to be parked I'd have to give it a go and I'd have to follow what I learnt and I probably would call someone and ask for some help (laughs) and some coaching or google Um, but I just think in this time around access we've also got to look at what our role is and the SPA guideline says it's our job no one else apart from speech pathologists treat stuttering. So this is where we jump online, we look at the websites, we reach out to, to people and see if they can help and coach us. Um, and we, we kind of follow, follow the steps and then look to see if we can get some good outcomes for these kids. Great, thank you. So Shane, you speak to us today about um, anxiety in children and adolescents who stutter. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, look, I think that's probably I mean, Kate spoke before about the the challenges with with treating children who stutter. Um, And I think for me, it's that challenge uh, and the sort of unique way that it impacts upon children. And and also we're sort of establishing that the impact could be on their families as well. I think that's what really sort of drives interest for me. Yeah, it's complex, 
But by the same token, what we, what we know is that this is a, a speech condition which is having a fairly significant impact upon children and, and likely upon their families and friends as well. Um, so we've got an opportunity to make a real difference. You know, certainly we know from a long-term impact perspective, um, there's real risks around educational and, and occupational attainment as well. I mean, I've told the story this morning about uh, the year 11 and year 12 children making decisions about uh, their careers based upon you know, their avoidance of communication. I mean, that's really significant. And I guess what we're seeing increasingly and, and starting to sort of investigate is, where does this originate from? Um, certainly we know that there's documented uh, anxiety, social anxiety in particular for adolescents and certainly for adults as well. I guess what we're less sure about is where that might have started. Um, certainly we can, we're aware that there's um, things happening during school, uh, during school uh, at school or in communication generally for this school age population uh, which might be leading to that future anxiety. I guess that sort of comes back to that issue around early intervention, the importance of early intervention as well, because it might be some of those reactions that they're getting from others, the sorts of avoidance strategies that they're starting to develop, um, that the teasing and bullying as well, that might be leading to the sort of chronicity of, of stuttering and, and also the fairly high prevalence of, of anxiety as well. So I guess that sort of is what drives us too um, and drives the message of the workshop is, is early intervention and, and good quality early intervention because we do have that opportunity to avoid those really heart-wrenching stories of those children who are, who are deciding not to do things, who aren't going up to order their favourite can of Coke because you know they don't, they don't want to have to say the word Coke because they always stutter on it. Um, you know. I'll ask mum or dad to do it instead. I won't become a lawyer, I won't become a teacher. Those jobs need people who, who can speak well and, and I can't speak well. So what do I do about it? I avoid those things. And that's, you know, it's, it's sad, but it has a really sort of significant impact upon their lives and, and the, the lives of their families as well. Great, thanks so much Shane and Kate, appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.